Friends, the Lord be with you. It's a joy to be with you in worship this morning and uh, to be able to open God's word together. So when uh, John asked me to preach, I said, well, what do you want me to preach on? And uh, standard answer, of course, is God. Uh, <laughs> but he said he had been sort of going through the book of John, and I said I was interested in the book of John. I had uh, a passage in particular I was thinking about from the end of John chapter 2, and John said, well, I didn't deal with that, so go ahead. You can uh, take that story. It's actually the story of the cleansing of the temple, as John tells it. And it's found in John 2, beginning at verse 13. As we open the word together, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence. May your word be our rule, your spirit our teacher, and your greater glory our supreme concern. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. <clears throat> the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is the word of the Lord. The story of the cleansing of the temple is one of the very few incidents from Jesus' ministry that's told in all four Gospels but with very striking differences between the first three Gospels, which we call the synoptics, because they have this common viewpoint, and they sort of tell the story of Jesus in the same way, more or less, and the fourth Gospel, the Gospel of John. And I think it's interesting to, to look at the similarities and the differences between the way they tell the story. It's a story probably most of you have heard before. And, uh, of course, it's the same story. That's the biggest similarity. It's the same issue that confronts Jesus and really sets him off. I mean, Jesus goes off in this story against the commercialism that had overtaken the temple, basically the temple courtyard. Interestingly, that started out as a kind of helpful, useful thing. 
because, uh, of course, worshipers were required by the law of the Old Testament when they came to offer sacrifices at the temple, and they would come at the great festivals like Passover here, or they could come individually if they had some special thank offering they wanted to make. But they were required to offer only a perfect animal, a lamb, a goat, uh, a sheep, a, a, a big bull, if it was a really big thing, or a pigeon if they were poor. But it had to be perfect. It had to be flawless. And of course, it was much more convenient to be able to acquire the animal for the sacrifice right there on the spot as opposed to having to lug it from home, you know, carry it all the way from Galilee uh, or whatever. So initially, this is a, a helpful thing. It's kind of a service. Same with the money. They were required as faithful Jews to make a temple tax payment every year. But they couldn't make that with money that had Caesar's image inscribed on it. How, how terrible, you know? Thou shalt not make any graven images, and you're going to offer that in your worship? So again, it was a convenience to be able to exchange that money for temple-appropriate money. But the problem, it's always the problem, isn't it? Pretty soon it wasn't a service anymore, it, it was a hustle. And the profit motive took over, inevitably. And so, the temple courtyard begins to look, look more and more like a mall. And people are there not to worship God, not even to assist the worshipers of God, but to make money. And of course, it could be justified. You can rationalize it, you know. It's like the guy I, I read about last week, the televangelist, who, who needs $54 million for a new private jet. Did you read about this guy? But it's for ministry, you know. It's ministry. You can rationalize anything. And Jesus, to Jesus, it's just an abomination. It's a desecration. It's appalling. It's much more than bad optics. That's what we would call it today. Uh, what are you doing? This is God's house. Now, interestingly, some of the differences. In the synoptics, Jesus quotes two verses about this business that, that seem to indicate the things that particularly offend him. Uh, my house shall be called a house of prayer for the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. So it seems as though they were preventing the Gentiles from approaching the temple in the only court they were allowed to use, and that they were cheating people, they were fleecing them. In John, it just seems to be more the, the whole business itself, regardless of whether it's honest or dishonest. Jesus just sort of says, get out of here. <laughs> this, play, this doesn't belong here. And it's, Je it's Jesus' disciples who come up with a verse. Zeal for your house has consumed me. And then comes the challenge. So the temple authorities are there, obviously, 
Uh, they couldn't miss this. I mean, Jesus, in, again in John, the violence is emphasized. John's the one who tells us that he made a whip out of cords, and he began to drive the, the livestock away, and he threw over the temples, and you can hear the, the coins clink on the pavement of the courtyard as they are scattered, and people are running every which way. It's a violent act. This isn't Jesus the Lamb, this is Jesus the lion. And you may recall, as was said of Aslan, he's not a tame lion. So the authorities challenge him. In the synoptics, they ask about authority. What authority do you have for doing this? I mean, who was Jesus anyway? He wasn't a priest, he wasn't even a Levite. <laughs> He was a member of the tribe of Judah. He didn't have any business with what went on in the temple. That wasn't his affair. He wasn't a Sadducee. He had no political authorization. He had no religious credentials. Jesus didn't have a PhD in liturgics so that he could order everything rightly. Who is this guy anyway? He, he comes in here as if he owned the place? Hmm, hmm. And Jesus wouldn't answer them. He responded with the riddle of John the Baptist. You tell me, was John from God or just a human? And they didn't dare answer. <laughs> because either answer would get them in trouble with the crowd. So Jesus said, I'm not going to tell you either then. But in John, notice it's essentially the same question. But how is it phrased? So the Jews said to him, the authorities, this would have been the Pharisees and the usual crowd, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Give us a sign. They didn't just want a statement or an explanation. They wanted proof. What sign? John is the gospel of signs. You know that? Have you ever noticed that? These great signs, that's the word John uses for the miracles of Jesus, and he selects seven of them. No accident, not coincidence, seven. Seven miracles that John relates. The first one is at the beginning of this chapter. It's the water into wine. And every one of those signs is intended to signify something, to send a message about who Jesus is and what he has come to do. And as you work your way through the Gospels, you see the signs, and very often they're connected to the sayings, the great seven I am sayings. Jesus is the new wine, of course. That's, the, that's how we begin. But he's more than that. He's, he feeds 5,000 people, and he's the bread of life. He heals a man born blind, and he's the light of the world. He raises Lazarus from the tomb, and he's the resurrection and the life. Sign, signifying. So here's the point, I think. See, maybe the most interesting difference in the way these two stories are told 
is that in the synoptics, this happens during Holy Week. It's just before Jesus is crucified. In fact, uh, to them, it's the sort of the last straw. It's the thing that brought about the crucifixion, the, the proximate cause. Um, but John moves it way to the beginning of the gospel, most likely. Some uh, people would maybe argue, well, Jesus must have done it twice. It seems much more likely that John is operating with a theological chronology here. He wants to send us a big message, and he wants it to come right at the outset. Sort of his top-down depiction of who Jesus is. So Jesus does give them a sign. It's the great sign. It's, it's, it's the eighth sign. It's the sign in which all the other signs are wrapped up. It's the ultimate sign. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it again. And they go, what? <laughs> what did he just say? What's he talking about? This temple, look at it. Took 46 years we've been building it, and it's still not finished. I hope your project goes a little bit... Uh... <laughs> 46 years and it's still not done. But John says he was speaking of the temple of his body. Even the disciples did not understand. It was opaque. It was mystifying, this last sign. It would take the sign to occur before they remembered what he said. Here's an interesting thing to me. Uh, one of the really significant things. You know, it happened. The sign happened. He did it. They destroyed the temple and he raised it. The power of God raised it. Three days later, it happened. I love a line I read years ago from a British New Testament scholar named C.F.D. Moole, who said, if the existence of the early Christians, the Nazarenes, tears a great hole in history, the shape of the resurrection, with what does the secular historian propose to stop it up? Isn't that great? I love that. In other words, it is undeniable that the, the first followers of Jesus, his disciples, after his crucifixion, began to proclaim publicly that Jesus was the Messiah. Not only that, that he was both Lord and Christ, Jesus is Lord, they said. How do you explain that? Because there were plenty of messianic pretenders, there were all sorts of messianic movements in the first century, but none of them survived the death of the one who claimed to be the Messiah. If that happened, the movement just fell apart. So how do you explain the existence of the Christian church? Now the secular historian explains it this way. This is the, the narrative that 
the secular historian cuts and shapes to fill the hole in history. <laughs> That's the size and shape of the resurrection. And what they say usually goes something like this. Well, the disciples, you know, they really liked Jesus. They were really keen, you know, to, to follow him. He meant so much to them. And then when he died, they were, they were just devastated. And, you know, afterwards, they were still getting together, and they kind of talked about him. And, and, and one of them one day said, you know, I, I, somehow I kind of feel like Jesus is still with us. And another one said, you know, I kind of feel that way too. And, and as they talked and they shared, somehow he, his spirit must still be with us. They eventually came up with the story of the resurrection. In other words, they believed and then they saw him. <laughs> that, that's basically how that goes. The New Testament witnesses exactly the opposite. They saw him, and then they remembered, and then they believed. It happened. The sign came true. He rose from the dead. So what does it mean? What's the point? What's the thing signified? that John wants us so to see. It's fairly simple. Jesus is the temple. <laughs> he was speaking of the temple of his body. Jesus' body is the new temple. So what was the temple all about? Well, the temple was, uh, was this wonderful thing which represented the presence of God on earth. And it was the focal point for the worship of God for the people of Israel. The temple was a kind of shadow depiction of heaven. Uh, I think it was N.T. Wright who called it the intersection of heaven and earth, the point where heaven touched earth. But now you, you need to understand what heaven is. In the Bible, heaven is not the place you go when you die, the way we popularly uh, describe it. Heaven represents ultimate reality. Heaven is the, the place where God reigns. Heaven is where God's throne is set. Heaven is the unseen world that's more real than this world. The world eventually that will come and be merged with this world when all things are made new. That's what heaven represents. See, you and I need to make a very basic choice in our worldview. <laughs> a very basic choice. It's more basic than any other. Do you believe that this world is all there is? This world that we can see, that we measure, that science tries to take apart and analyze and put back together and that technology operates on. Do you believe this is it? It's all there is. If you do, then you're a materialist. I'm, I'm not saying that pejoratively, that's just what that worldview is, that all that there is is matter, the laws of science, everything is chemistry and physics, including brain chemistry. There's no, <laughs> there's nothing more. <laughs> and if that's true, then you and I 
Well, Paul said it best, we are of all people most to be pitied. Because we're here under a vast illusion. A vast illusion. But if there is another world, an unseen reality where God is God, then it's the materialists who are most to be pitied. So you need to, you need to kind of make up your mind on that. That's, that's sort of where it all starts. So what does it mean to say that Jesus is now the temple? His body is the focal point of the presence of God in the world. His body, his body is the focal point of God's presence in the world. And it means that he's the place we worship God, right? <laughs> he's the place we worship God. If you turn over a few pages in John, you'll come to this wonderful story of Jesus' conversation with a Samaritan woman. And it got a little uh, too personal at one point for her. She was kind of uncomfortable. as Jesus seemed to be calling her out <laughs> uh, for what she had done and what she was. And so she tried to shift the, the, the conversation in a more theological direction, you know. It's always, let's talk about religion. Let's debate religion. Where do you think is the place to worship, she said. In Mount Gerizim, the way we Samaritans do? Or are you Jews the ones who are right and we have to go to Jerusalem like you say? And Jesus said to her, oh, time out, lady. Uh, it's not about a place anymore. The time has come when now it's about a person. Those who worship must worship in spirit and in truth. Capital S, capital T. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So Jesus is the place to worship. That seems pretty clear. But one more thing, one more thing, friends. Jesus as the new temple is also the source of life. Life. John is all about life. Have you ever noticed that? Have, have you noticed how much life there is? It's all life, life, life. What's the most famous verse in the Bible? Anyone? John 3. How does that go again? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What? Life. What? Life. life. Life, I have come that they might have and have it more abundantly. <laughs> There's a vision at the end of the book of Ezekiel. Not a real familiar part of scripture for most of us, including me, but it's in, Isaiah, it's in Ezekiel 47. It's the vision of a new temple. Ezekiel is the prophet of exile and God's people are defeated and broken. It's, it's also the place where the vision of the dry bones is, you know, can these bones live again? That's the house of Israel. No, it looks like they're dead. They're finished. 
And then God gives Ezekiel a new vision, he said, because Ezekiel had seen earlier the glory of the Lord leave the temple. And now the temple's been destroyed. It's lying among those dry, dead bones. And then the Lord says, there's going to come a new temple, and this is what it's going to look like. And he gives the directions and the, the measurements and the instructions and the rooms and the storehouse. And then in chapter 47, as Ezekiel's standing there and he sees the temple and the glory of the Lord has come back, suddenly a trickle begins to flow from the side of the temple. And the angel says to him, I want you to go out a thousand yards and measure and he measures and it's ankle deep. And, then, and the angel says, go another thousand. And now it's up to mid-calf. And go another thousand and now it's up to his waist. And go another thousand and suddenly it's a river so deep that he can swim in it. And it begins to teem with life and it flows down into the Araba. And it, it turns the Dead Sea sweet makes it come alive. And on, on the banks of the river, there sprang up trees with leaves for the healing of the nations. Friends, do you remember one other thing John tells us? When Jesus died, a soldier took his javelin and pierced his side, and out came blood and water life. He said to that same woman, if you knew who was standing here, you would ask him for water. And he would give you water such that you never thirsted again. In fact, that water would become in you a, a spring welling up and flowing out into life for the world. <laughs> so friends, come. Come and receive him. He offers you life. He offers you water <laughs> and bread and wine at no cost. Come now. Take, eat, remember, and believe that Christ died for your sins and feed upon him in your heart by faith with thanksgiving.